Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we, we praise you. Uh, you are uh, so great. You are worthy. We are unworthy. We are worthy of all praise and glory and honor. God, may we uh, ascribe great um, worth to your name this morning. God, may we make, continue to make much of you this morning as we have been in song. God, I pray that, that, um, that you would uh, just supernaturally enable me, Holy Spirit, to proclaim your excellencies, to, uh, to, um, to proclaim your goodness in your sovereignty that you are great, that you are righteous, you are just, um, that your eyes never leave the righteous, that you do, in fact, deliver the afflicted in our affliction. And God, I'm thankful for this book of Job that just seems at times randomly stuck into this book. But Lord, it truly does declare and point to you uh, verse after verse it declares your goodness and your justice and your sovereignty. And so, Lord, I pray that, again, um, Lord, in my um, um, limited understanding, in my limited knowledge, my limited wisdom, God, I pray that you would help me uh, convey truth as, you would, as it would please you um, and as it would um, edify those you've brought here today. And, Lord, I pray that we would uh, start to see uh, suffering in a new light. I pray that we would be reminded by the, um, by the, um, the only man who didn't deserve suffering, who suffered in our place and died in our place so that we would never incur ultimate suffering and that we would instead enjoy um, eternal life um, in friendship with our Creator. So God, have your way with us here this morning. And may you be honored and glorified. And God's people said, amen. Good morning. So we are in the book of Job once again. This is like number six or seven, I think six. And uh, it's, it's a great passage. It's the first time that we've heard the, the, the Lord Almighty speak directly um, for um, four chapters. Uh, we're going to hear him speak today for two chapters, next week for two chapters. And he addresses Job um, specifically and directly. And he has something for us. Um, he has something for each one of us, no matter, no matter where you're at in your, in your journey. Um, before we get started, I want to, um, we've got a lot of moving parts in this service, but I want to encourage you that there are prayer cards um, underneath the outside of, of each row, and I'm wondering if whoever's on the outside could actually grab those and um, take one or two and pass them, pass them down. And if you, if you run out, uh, just come up and grab some. And um, I want to encourage you to, um, sometime during the service, um, fill this out, um, we're going to have these spread out during our 24 hours of prayer. And if you have not joined us in the 24 hours of prayer, it is a wonderful opportunity to pray for the needs and the, um, and the sufferings of, of this body and people that we know and love. So I'd encourage you to uh, fill this out um, as the Lord prompts you during the service. And then we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And when you come up and take the elements, I'm going to encourage you to actually drop the filled out um, cards um, in that basket. And we have, uh, have these cards are specially made. Each one has a uh, chip embedded, and we actually know who does and who does not drop the card in there. So um, if you don't do it, I'll be praying for your dry, shriveled soul tonight after the service. Uh, no, there's no, just as, as the Lord leads you. Um, so we are going to be at, uh, looking at Job 38 through chapter 40, verse 5, and I'm going to be bringing up um, 
Patrick in a while. Is Patrick Ness here? Oh, you're right there. How in the world can I miss you? So good to see you. Um, I'm going to bring up Patrick here in, in a while to uh, read the scripture, but first I want to I introduce it. So you might be just flipping your Bibles open to chapter 38, either analog or digital as I'm introducing it. And I was, I was thinking about um, Job and this man who's endured so much suffering. And he's a man that just woke up one day and everything had changed. Um, everything had changed in his life. He is a man that, um, that everything was running smoothly. Um, everything he touched turned to proverbial gold. Um, he raised his family well. He ran his business well. He had a good reputation amongst the people in the town. And I was just thinking about things that run well and how I take that for granted. Um, I take a, a ton for granted. I'm not, the most, I'm not the most handy guy in the world. Some of you that know me would know that about me. I'm just not handy. If I, if I had to choose, uh, uh, change my oil, if there was no grease monkey, um, our cars would be blown up every 15,000 miles because I don't know how to change the oil. Um, for, for me, when, um, when I get in my car, I expect it to run. When I hit the button on the computer, I expect it to have lights on it and like little icons on it. My cell phone, I hit it and it should turn on. I turn on the shower, flip on the lights, flip the switch on the copy machine. I expect everything to work as planned. And um, I, don't, I don't care how they work. I, don't, I could care less about um, what goes on inside the coffee pot. I just want to put um, coffee on the top, pour water in it, and then have it automatically flip on at 5.30 in the morning. Um, some of you care how things work. Some of you have, like, engineer minds, and that's, that's awesome. I don't. Um, and so for me, when things um, break or stop working, you don't fix it. You throw it in the trash, and you buy a new one. So I'm neither a creator um, or a sustainer. Most of the time, um, I take things for granted. I take for granted, for example, that the sun comes up in the east and it goes down in the west. I take for granted that in the fall, um, things turn brown, snow starts flying, leaves fall off the trees. I take for granted that grass comes up in the springtime and the trees start budding. Like, how does that all happen? I mean, it's just, I just expect it to happen and don't give it much of a thought. Job was a man. Actually, a lot like me, although he was probably a lot more respected. He was probably a lot more successful. Um, he had probably a lot more going on than I did. He had 10 kids. I've got three. Job was a man who woke up day after day with everything working. Everything was clicking as it did the day before. He was a blameless man. He was an upright man. He was the, he was, uh, there was nobody in the, in the whole land like him. He was a servant of the God Most High. He was a righteous man. His good life was turned upside down. For those of you that are new with us, um, you, you probably know something about Job. So those of you that have been with here every Sunday, um, I want to remind you of these important truths that, that everything changed for Job in a second. It all stopped working. He lost his business. His health failed him. His wife had a meltdown. Worst of all, he had to bury all 10 of his children. And then it got worse from there. He had three friends, three good friends that traveled from afar. And they saw that Job's suffering was great, and they grieved. They wept with him for seven days and seven nights. Good friends. At the end of those seven days, Job stood up, and he spoke. And speaking, he did. He lamented. In chapter 3, he gave a heart-wrenching, heartfelt lament, asking God, why? Why would you allow me to, to be born, to even be conceived, and to, knowing that I would experience what I'm experiencing in my life right now, all the calamity? These friends made his suffering worse. 
these so-called comforters had a theology of, of definite retribution. And what that means is simply is that what you, what you sow is what? What you reap. And I want to talk about this over and over again because this is a principle that is tried and true. It's a principle that's talked about in the Proverbs. It's something that we could actually um, train our kids in. That what you sow, that if you work hard, chances are that you are going to um, be employable. If you go to school and get a degree, you're going to have a better chance of getting a job. If you obey me, I'm not going to beat your backhand. What you sow is what you reap, but it is a principle, not a promise. And if we treat this definitive retribution as a promise rather than a principle, when that principle goes backwards, we're going to be angry with God. When things don't work out, when we sow good and we reap evil, there's only one person to blame for that, is there not? And ultimately, it's God. And we're going to see that, I think, even clearer and clearer today. Job defended his innocence for 22 chapters over and over again, telling his friends, far be it from me to say that you are right and that I am wrong. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. And we know what Job's friends didn't know, that Job, that there was nothing that Job did. There was no evil that Job sowed that, that turned out, um, that resulted in the calamity that he is experiencing now. Even though Job's suffering is not a direct result of any particular sin, in his suffering, he is now sinning. In his suffering, he's now sinning. He is getting angry with God. A couple of things where he is sinning, where we've seen, is that he is, he is accusing God of targeting him unfairly and treating him as an enemy. He's also accusing God of being silent. God, where are you in the midst of my suffering? And we know from our vantage point that God has been right there the entire time. Job has repeatedly questioned the wisdom with which the Almighty is governing the world. And by implication, he is saying that he could have offered the Creator some useful hints in governing the world. For example, like not condemning a righteous man. God, let me help you out. I've done everything that you've asked me to do. I've done everything. And you do this to me? That's not the way the universe should be ran. Job's last words demanded that God answer him. And last week we saw the prophet Elihu. How many of you for the first time saw that Elihu was a, was a prophet last week? They've never seen that before. A few of you. Um, after all the, uh, the times I've looked at Job, I've always wondered who this dude is. And I've heard it taught that he's just a, a polite young man waiting for his turn to speak. And that he was. But he is speaking for the God Most High, the Almighty God, uh, the, the sovereign creator of the universe. And we saw Elihu last week uh, speak on behalf of the Lord and he reminded Job that God is great, that God is good, that God is just, that God can do no wrong, that God does not withdraw his eyes ever from the righteous, that he actually afflicts his friends to open their ears to his instruction. He reminded Job that God is not Job's enemy, but, God, but Job's surgeon to help Job be healed. And what we see today, what happens now is astonishing. God speaks and he speaks directly to Job personally to Job. It's, and this is what Job most passionately desired. Yet this, fading real, this was a fading reality for Job. And what Job doesn't fully understand is that God is right with, her in the storm, with him in the storm. He's always been with him in the storm. 
speaking to him, looking to deliver him from his affliction in his affliction. The Almighty graciously today speaks to Job in a way that Job can hear. And I want to introduce this before I bring Patrick up. I want to introduce chapter 38, verses 1 through 3. And the very first thing that we see in, chapter, in verse 1, chapter 38, is that the Lord, Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. That, that the Lord answered Job out of the storms of life. And we don't know if it was an audible voice. We don't know if it was a, uh, an internal voice. It was his conscience. But we know it was God speaking to Job. And there's a couple of significant points in this very first verse is that it says the Lord came to Job. That's Yahweh. It's the first time that we've seen the word, the, uh, the God referred to as Lord or Yahweh since chapter 2. And this is the covenant God. This is the Savior God. This is the God who created the universe. And this smacks of, of, of uh, loving kindness. That it was, the, it was the Savior covenant God who showed up. And this God who speaks to Job here is a God who would later be revealed as a covenant God of Israel who would save, and the same God who is sovereign over all creation. And this God, the Lord Yahweh, came not to punish Job, but to reprove him lovingly. And God's reproof, brothers and sisters, I'll say this every Sunday, to to his children is never judgment. That if you know Jesus, he will never judge you for your sins. If you are rebellious and you know him, he will lovingly discipline you. And yes, it might hurt from time to time, but it is not his wrath. So the first thing we see in that, in that very first verse is that God is defined or comes to him as Yahweh, as the covenant God. Secondly, is God speaks to Job and to you and I out of the whirlwind. That in the storms of life, he speaks to us in our most scary, lonely storms of life, that God is waiting there and wanting to speak to us, wanting us to listen to him. Verse 2, God accuses Job of, of darkening counsel by words without knowledge. Who is this that darkenings that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? The word counsel is a broad term that describes the way in which the world is ordered or governed. And what God is saying is, who is this that's telling me how to run the world? Who is this that is darkening um, my counsel and my sovereignty and my providence? As we know, Job is not guilty of, of secret sins. However, Job has spoken many words, and some of his words, as Elihu put it, have been without knowledge and insight. And now we see that God agrees with Elihu's verdict. Even though God will affirm that Job spoke rightly in chapter 42, verse 7, we'll look at that next week. For today, the focus will be on where Job went wrong. And God has two speeches. Uh, The first speech ends in uh, chapter 39, verse 39, and the second speech begins in chapter 40, verse 6. And we're just going to cover the first speech today. So today, we're going to focus on where Job went wrong. A couple of questions to focus on. By what plan or design is the word world governed? By what plan or design is the world governed? Two, is the counsel of God a good counsel? And three, do we live in a well-run world? Do we live in a well-run world? And then in verse three, God says to Job, dress for action like a man. I will question you and make it known to you. And what he's telling Job to do is to gird up his robe, pull it up, tuck it in your robe, and let's get after it. I want you to listen to me. Get ready to wrestle with me. 
And there's another sense, that, that's sarcasm, there's another sense where, where calling him a man is, is affirmative, that he's affirming Job, the believer, as one who can stand tall and engage in conversation with God, that he can boldly come before the throne of grace. He is a genuine believer, and he has a relationship with Yahweh, the covenant God. So God does answer Job, but not in the way that Job may have preferred. God answers Job's questions with a question. Many questions, rhetorical questions. The answer to each question God asks is not simply for Job to say, not me, but it's for Job to acknowledge, no, not me, but you, God. Not me, I didn't do it, but you did. And as I invite Patrick Ness up here, I want to encourage you to turn to chapter 38 through verse 40, uh, chap chapter 38 through chapter 40, verse 5. And uh, if you'd stand up, please, for the reading of the word. And my prayer is that your legs do not fall asleep. Job 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together? And all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garments and thick darkness its swallowing band, and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea, or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Where is the way to the dwelling of light, and where is the place of darkness that you may take Take it to its territory, and that you may discern the path to its home. You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow, or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed, or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the ground sprout with grass? Has the rain a father, or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth, and who has given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters become hard like stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Maseroth in their season or guide the bear with his children? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings 
and they may go and say to you, here we are. Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom? Or who can tilt the water skin of the heavens when the dust runs in the mass and the clods stick fast together? Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wonder about their lack of food? Do you know when the mountain goes gives birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? Can you number the months that they fulfill? And do you know the time when they give birth, when they crouch, bring forth their offspring, and are delivered of their young? Their young ones become strong. They grow up in the open. They go out and do not return to them. Who has let the wild donkey go free? Who has loosed the bands of the swift donkey to whom I have given the arid plain for his home and the salt land for his dwelling place? He scorns the tumult of the city. He hears not the shouts of the driver. He ranges the mountains as his pasture, and he searches after every green thing. Is a wild ox willing to serve you? Will he spend the night at your manger? Can you bind him in the furrows with ropes, or will he harrow the valleys after you? Will you depend on him because his strength is great, and will you leave to him your labor? Do you have faith in him that he will return your grain and gather it to your threshing floor? The wings of the ostrich wave proudly, but are they pinions and plumage of love? For she leaves her eggs to the earth and lets them be warmed on the ground, forgetting that a foot may crush them and that the wild beasts may trample them. She deals cruelly with her young as if they were not hers. Through her labor be in vain, yet she has no fear because God has made her forget wisdom and given her no share in understanding. When she rouses herself to flee, she laughs at the horse and his rider. Do you give the horse his might? Do you clove his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like the locust? His majestic snorting is terrifying. His paws in the valley, he paws in the valley and exults in his strength. He goes out to meet the weapons. He laughs at fear and is not dismayed. He does not turn back from the sword. Upon him rattle the quiver, the flashing spear, and the javelin. With fierceness and rage, he swallows the ground. He cannot stand still at the sound of the trumpet. When the trumpet sounds, he says, aha. He smells the battle from afar, the thunder of the captains and the shouting. Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads its wings toward the south? Is it, is it at your command that the eagles mount up and makes his nest on high? On the rocks he dwells and makes his home, on the rocky crag and stronghold. From there he spies out the prey, his eyes behold it from far away. His young ones suck up blood, and where the slain are, there is he. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Those are the words of the Almighty. a lot there, huh? That beautiful, strange, confusing poetry that is. In chapter 38, verses 1 through 38, God speaks about his inanimate 
creation, his inanimate creation. And in verses 4 through 21 of that first section, he talks about the place of evil in the good created order. In these verses, we see a contrast between good and evil. And it causes us, at least it caused me, to think about where evil fits into the overall picture. And um, I actually don't remember if it was last service or this service. I think it was this service. But I just want to acknowledge again that, that I'm, a, I'm a sojourner with you. Did I already say that? I'm a sojourner. And what I mean by that is just something the Lord's put in my heart is that these are hard truths for me, actually. I mean, it's, it's not hard for me to believe that God is who he said he was, um, that he died on the cross for my sins, that he rose again from the dead. But just understanding the whole genesis of evil and where evil comes from, um, it's, it's, it's hard. And, and I'm, not, I'm not standing up here today, honestly, as, a, uh, as an authority. I'm standing up here as a fellow sojourner who is uh, wanting to understand God's word with you. And I take God's word at face value. Uh, but some of these are difficult truths, wonderful truths, but difficult truths. And so in these verses, we see a contrast between good and evil. And it should cause us to think about where evil fits into the overall picture. And where does evil come from? Who is the author of evil? Who holds evil back? Who pushes it forward? Verses 4 through 7 we see that the order of creation is good. God describes the universe as a giant building project. He is speaking to Job and saying, where were you when I laid the foundation? Where were you when I, uh, when I built the universe um, in its goodness? I w- God is the architect, the builder, the cornerstone. He holds it all together. He is not only the creator, he's the sustainer. If he looks away for a second, it all falls apart. And he will not look away until he is ready and he comes back to judge the living and the dead. And then in verse 7, after he asks the questions in verses 4 through 6, he wraps up these initial questions with this. The morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. And what he's saying is, where were you when all this happened? When all this was happening, the morning stars sang and all the sons of God shouted for joy. You see, this is parallelism here. And what's happening is it helps us understand that the stars are a metaphor for heavenly beings, for angels. And the point is, is they sang for joy when they saw what God himself saw. And that's God's completed project was good and it was very good. It was done on budget. It was done on time. And it was perfect, exactly the way that he drew it up. And it will stay exactly the way he drew it up until he comes back to reshape it, to restore it, to recreate it, if you will. In the midst of affliction, Job has denied the fundamental goodness of God's order. God is saying that when the universe was set in place, those who observed and understood what was happening rejoiced in its goodness. So what a good God proclaimed to be good and the angels sang about what joy included the seeds of evil, the seeds of evil, that the, that the universe was, was and is the universe. There was nothing added to it. So when a good God proclaimed to be good and the angels sang about the goodness, it, that it included the seeds of evil. It included all that the world, all that would transpire in history, including what we call the fall, and including all the entailments of evil. Beyond that, I don't understand it. 
But I do know that God is not the, um, he's not the author of evil, but he uses evil to govern the universe. He uses it to bring wise counsel. He uses bad all the time for good. He causes bad so that he can use it for good. Verses 8 through 11, chapter 38, evil, though, is limited, and it has constraints. It's limited, and it has constraints. We learn here that, that even though evil is present in God's good creation and order, evil is limited, and it is constrained by God. The sea in the Bible is a picture of chaos. It's a picture of evil, disorder, danger, and ultimately death. If you just open up mostly in the Old Testament, um, in fact, if you look at some of Jesus' uh, journeys across the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee was often angry and chaotic. Nancy and I were on the Oregon coast back in October and November. We'd never been up there before. And if you've ever been to Oregon that time of year, um, the ocean is angry. I mean, we, it, was, it was raining or tornado had just hit a neighboring town on the coast. And I came to understand it's the first time in 100 years that a tornado hit the Oregon coast. And, and there's, only, uh, two, there's only one thing in common that that tornado and this tornado had in, co- in common, as far as I can tell. That was me. I mean, I was, I was here, and I was there when the tornadoes hit. But I remember walking out of our hotel and going across the street, and it was, it was raining, and the waves, white caps were everywhere, and the ocean was just crashing up against the cliff. And we approached the seashore, which was very rocky anyways, and I just, I just remember just being a little bit fearful. I mean, I was actually thinking tsunamis, thinking, thinking hurricane. And the, the sea is, is it's a, it's a symbol of chaos. And we see here in verses 8 through 11 with a strange and a dark humor that God invites us to think of the sea as being like a baby, actually. Picture the baby breaking forth when the mother's water breaks and then causing havoc from that day forward. I know some of you can relate with that. But here is a baby that is completely restrained, verse 9, by a swaddling band. In verse 10, it is locked up in a playpen so they can't run free. It can't cause chaos everywhere it goes. Here is a picture of an unruly infant under discipline with strict limits. In verse 11, you can only come so far and not any farther. The sea has a limit. It's called coasts and cliffs. The sea has a limit. But even when the sea um, goes past the 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 seashore and the cliffs, some call it tsunami or, or a hurricane, it can't go any further than God allows it. It can't go any further than God allows it. And this is exactly what God tells them, is that evil has limits, and those limits are set by God. This is not to say that God is the originator of evil but in a sense that evil is no more of a threat to God than a badly behaving baby is to their parents. The power of evil is no match for the power of God. A couple of things to, uh, to make a note of so far. One is that evil has a limit. And two, in some strange and wonderful way, even disorder has a place in God's order. Even disorder has a place in God's order. And if you and we're going to be like we're going to be doing these two chapters at about five thousand feet. We don't have time for for ground level. I got the time, but I don't know if you got the time. 
So we'll be doing it from 5,000 feet. We'll be skipping over a lot of verses. Um, so I'd submit a lot of this for your own study. Chapter 38, verses 12 through 15, um, what this tells us in these four verses is that the structure of creation shows that evil will one day be destroyed. And for those of us that have put our faith and trust in Jesus, um, our hope is in that. We know that for us, evil has been destroyed. That Satan has no longer has authority over us. That, that sin no longer reigns in our mortal bodies. Yes, we're in our flesh. Yes, Satan still roams around like a roaring lion looking for uh, people to devour. But one day when Jesus returns, that, that evil will once and for all be destroyed. And then chapter 38, verses 22 to 38, it talks about the skies speaking of the created order. In this section, God calls on Job, and he calls to us, actually, to, to look upwards, to, to look at the skies, to reflect on what the skies teach us about the wonderful counsel of God in his government of the world. There's little Valerie. Hi, Valerie. She's so cute. Valerie is one month old-ish, right? Yeah. Valerie Yvonne. How is that? Man. That's great. You know what I did decide, though, if, uh, and if, if you have any more kids, or if anybody has any kids, Elihu, I was telling Cuppy and I were talking about that, Elihu is an awesome name, especially after what we learned about, Aaron, what do you think? Next? Yeah. Yeah. For any of you pregnant ladies, I mean, Elihu, or, I mean, Dan's a good one, too. I mean, I, you can. So, so in, in chapter 22 to verse 38, we see that the that, that God is encouraging Job and us to reflect on what the skies teach us about the wonderful counsel of God and his government of the world. Um, the first thing in, in verses 22 through 24, we see that snow and hail are God's waters for trouble. Job is asked by God if he's been to the places from which these things come, snow and hail. And if he has, then he would understand why and how and when they are unleashed. And he'll be able to control them, but of course he can't. And we see in verses 25 through 27, and then at the end in 34 through 38, we see that rain is God's water for life. Water can fall as hail and snow as destruction, but it also falls as as life-giving, rain. It says that God cleft or created a channel for water to flow. This indicates deliberate action by God. Deliberate action by God. Rain does not just happen by chance. This has just encouraged me. I feel like in many ways I, I, I live my life in Thanksgiving, but when I, when I read verses like this, I go, I really don't. Because I just, you know, I, I fertilize the grass in, uh, grass in like perfect timing before it starts raining, and then it starts raining, and it's like a perfect amount of rain. It's not like a downpour. Grass is starting to turn green, and I just expect that to happen rather than being thankful and understanding that God actually causes that to happen, and he doesn't have to. He can actually do hail instead and ruin our trees, and sometimes he does, and we need to be thankful for that as well. And by this rain, it says that he actually makes the desolate land spring forth with vegetation. What a contrast. The same element sent by the same creator with different consequences. And then he adds in verses 34 through 38 that life-giving water is under God's control. I mean, he emphasizes what I just said and what was up earlier. We get this beautiful picture of the Almighty actually tilting the clouds, like water skins, tilting the clouds so that the rain would fall. Not too much, not too, not, not too little. Exactly what he wants. Sometimes it feels like too much. Sometimes it doesn't feel like enough. But he's tilting the clouds in his perfect providence what he wants to do. 
And then I want to encourage you to take a look at chapter 38, 31 through 33, where he talks about the constellations and the stars, and uh, we're not going to have time to look at that. No human being can command life-giving rain and prevent hail and snow. No human being can avoid suffering and ensure constant blessing. That's the point of these passages. This is not within Job's power, and it's not within our power that we cannot avoid suffering. And oftentimes when we avoid suffering, we end up sinning, actually. I see it happen in marriages, Christian marriages, where one might be suffering, and they flee the marriage in an unbiblical way, and they end up sinning instead. There's so many more examples, even in my own marriage. Christopher Ashe says this. He says, we're not at liberty to credit God with the times when, he, when we experience life-giving rain without also acknowledging that he is the one from whom death-dealing ice and frost comes to us. He is a sovereign originator of them all. So the main response so far is to begin to think more deeply about how the doctrine of the sovereignty of God extends to his sovereignty over evil. We're forced to consider the strange but wonderful possibility that evil is created to serve the purposes and glory of God, and that in some mysterious way, even, even darkness is necessary to show forth the light of God's goodness. Think of the cross. We don't need to look any further than the cross. That without Jesus' suffering, without his death, without that um, dark night on afternoon in Calvary, we would never know the light of Christ in our lives. We would never have ultimate joy and eternal life. And we'll talk more about this in, in this second section of this first speech in chapter 38. It'll go all the way through the end of chapter 39. And we're just going to kind of bounce on a few of these. Now he goes from inanimate objects to speaking about animals and birds. And in order to grasp the goodness in the midst of suffering and evil, we need a faith. Job needs a faith, and we need a faith in the absolute goodness, supremacy, and universal sovereignty of God. In that order, folks, it's not, it's not enough to, to believe, that say, you know, I believe God's sovereign over everything. You've got to first believe he's good. And if you ever, and we'll talk about it at the end as well, but if you ever doubt that he's good, just look at the cross of Christ. That he would kill his only son so that we might live. God continues speaking but changes the topic from these objects to animals and birds. The creatures that, Job, that God describes here are deeply wild. They're not expected to be found on Job's farm or anybody's farm. These are not domesticated animals. These are animals and birds that, that, are, that lie outside of the limits of the world that is ordered by human beings. These are not animals that are described to be tamed. What we see in these animals and these birds, we see both life and death. We see the descriptions in these verses that live somewhere between life and sustenance on one hand and death and decay on the other. And it starts off with the lion and her cubs in verses 39 through 41, chapter 38. The predator and the prey. Lions kill their prey so that their cubs can live. And the lions, when they kill their prey, the ravens feed off the dead carcass so that they can feed their chicks. 
And if the beauty, what is it that a lion kills? What's that animal called? What is it? Gazelle. That works. Antelope. Somebody said an oryx. I don't even know what an oryx is. That's one of those guys on, on uh, yeah, it's, uh, we won't go there. Antelope. We'll call it, can I say an antelope? Yeah. So, so um, if, the, if the beauty of the antelope is to be unspoiled, if we're to, to, um, to, to let him uh, be unspoiled and not killed, then the beauty of the lions and the helplessness of the raven chicks will end in starvation and death. The survival of the one must be at the cost of the other. In verse 30 is a shocking picture of young eagles around a dead body with blood dripping from their lips. And all of it, back to verse 27, is a result of God's command. God says to Job that he himself is the one who hunts the prey for the lion who satisfies the appetite of the lion cubs. It is possible that in the counsel of God, this world is so ordered that suffering for some is necessary for the survival of others. I think about my wife's mom who died 22 years ago. She was on dialysis for years and years, had surgery after surgery. It was on her dying bed that she had Nancy read the book of Romans to her. And it's through reading the book of Romans to my dying mother-in-law that God saved my wife, Nancy. And I don't think Nancy's mom, who is in heaven right now with her Savior, would ever regret dying so that her daughter might hear the gospel and have lasting life. This process of predation also is a pointer to a deeper truth, perhaps even the truth of redemptive suffering, that the day will come when the suffering of one innocent man will be God's means to bring life to the whole of redeemed humanity. Suffering and death of one man will bring lasting joy and life to many. And as we go to chapter 39, verses 1 through 4, we see that God's t- this is God's time for life in the wild. He's he's saying basically, do you know when and where the mountain goats give birth? Did you design their gestation period? The God who brings trouble through snow and hail is also the God who brings life through birth. The preacher in Ecclesiastes in chapter 3 says that for everything there's a time, for every matter under heaven, a time for birth and a time for death. And we skip down to verses 13 through 25 and we see a contrast between the stupidest animal, I used to think it was sheep, and one of the most majestic animals on the earth. The the stupidest animal is an ostrich. Has anybody ever been face-to-face with an ostrich? Nobody? In the last service, you have? Where at? At the zoo? How close were you? That close? Did he look like Einstein? Did he look like a smart animal? (laughs) He's big and mean, yeah. So so these animals can reach um, eight eight foot in, in height. And, um, and these ostriches have, God has given them no wisdom. Um, an ostrich actually, I believe it's pa- placed here as a picture of Job, who's a mixture of foolishness but strength. You see, the ostrich lays their eggs in a, in a, either on the ground or in a very um, shallow um, nest for other animals to step on. And oftentimes, she will crush her own babies by stepping on them, not even know that they're there. As it 
the, the, the ostrich has wings that, that do no good. They stand eight foot tall. They take, when they're running their, 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 their uh, not paws, not legs, their claws, 15 feet between steps. They run up to 40 miles an hour. And then he, he contrasted here. In verse 18, we're told that she laughs. The ostrich, this stupid one, laughs at the mighty war horse described in verses 19 through 25. This stupid bird can outrun the majestic and terrifying war horse. And God has made a creature with an amazing burst of speed and a comical lack of common sense. And I'm not sure, actually, um, what is meant in, this, in these verses what the precise point for Job to learn is, except that there is in this universe much that is unintelligible, much that is strange, and much that is a paradox that we'll never understand. Why would God in His providence ever make a bird that runs 40 miles an hour with wings that can't fly? Summary. The Lord has been defending His good and sovereign government, His good and sovereign order, His good and sovereign counsel. And it's, it's unlike so many of our Christian celebrations of the wonders of creation. God has given an account of creation and everything that He's created, but when we do this, and we should keep doing this, we have chosen beautiful, full of grace, and majestic pictures of our grandkids and our kids and our, and our snowboarding adventures and our... Standing there with our, our elk that we shot. Rather, the Lord gives Job a brutal, in-your-face portrait of death and danger as well as birth and life. There's in this universe, there is a great deal of death. There's a great deal of violence. There's a great deal of predation, both among animals and metaphorically among humans. Danger and terror. I was just thinking about that... Um, the picture of a man that is um, throwing men, women, and children into the ovens in Auschwitz while listening to the beautiful music of Beethoven. You get this contrast of good and evil where, where sex, where God has created it for one man, one woman to enjoy, but it's being perverted with sex trafficking all over the world. these good and evil are woven together in the world that we live in. We cannot take out death and just leave life alone. If we took out death, there would be no life without death. Any plan, any government in this world in which good is ultimately to triumph must necessarily have within it a plan to overcome evil with good. Job could not expect, we cannot expect, a shallow, trite, simple solution to the problem of evil. We must not be surprised if the counsel of God is inscrutable. We must not challenge His counsel with the arrogance of human claims to have superhuman knowledge. And this leads to God's concluding challenge in chapter 40, verses 1 through 2. The Lord says to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty or argue with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. This is amazing. It's sobering, actually. The man whose wealth God confiscated, whose family God took away, whose greatness God has removed, and whose health God has ruined. God, in summary, is saying, I've not made any mistakes. I know exactly what I'm doing in your life and every detail of the government of the world. My counsel is perfect, and I get nothing wrong. 
based on what God just laid out, should one who has found fault in the way I run the universe, God says, continue complaining against me, the Almighty God? God calls on Job to respond, answer me. It's also a call for our response. Who are we to question God? How do we respond to the seeming injustice and suffering in our own lives and the world around us? I know it's not without compassion. I know it's not uh, looking down at the other person and saying, if you would have just sowed something different, you would have never reaped that pain and evil. But I do think that, um, and I'm not sure how to do this, actually. I don't think I do it well. But I think as we grieve with one another, I think we can remind one another of God's providence and that God is a good God and that He is there with you in the midst of the storm. His eyes are on the righteous always. In our suffering, we are pointed to the fact that our questions of why aren't most important. But the question of who is God and who are we is most important. So we may, may never get an answer to our why, but we can clearly know who He is and who we are in Him. God is the creator and the sustainer. We are His dependent creatures. He owes us nothing. Then God says, speak up, Job. Answer me, son. And Job responds in verses 3 through 5. He says, I'm of small account. I'm unworthy. I'm of small account. I'm just a creature. You are the creator. He says, I've spoken too much. I will now listen. He says, I will shut up. And folks, there are many postures for worship. And one of the postures that, that I don't engage in a lot is silence. We see it in Habakkuk 2.20. We see it in Psalm 46. That silence is a form of worship. That we don't, always, we don't have to be listening to music to worship. We don't have to be reading the word to worship. Sometimes it's good just to shut the radio off. Go on a quiet uh, walk. And just worship. Listen. So Job says he's a small account, he's unworthy. He says, I've spoken too much, I'll now listen. Then he says, I have no answer. I have no answer. He acknowledges his ignorance. He acknowledges that he doesn't know what he know, doesn't know. He acknowledges that the secret things belong to the Lord. And then finally he says, I will say no more. I will proceed no further. I will wait on you, God. Job is not repenting yet, but he's on the way. We're going to see Job repent next week, actually. We see God starting to humble him. Job is starting to see and understand what Elizabeth Elliot would see and say many years later. She says this. She says, it is in our acceptance of what is given that God gives himself. It is in our acceptance of what God has given that God gives himself. Remember back at the beginning when Job's wife told Job to curse God and die? Remember what Job said? Job said this. He said, shall we accept good from God and not accept evil? That was in chapter 2. 
Here we are in chapter 38, 39. And Job has been so pounded into the ground by his suffering, so pounded into the ground by his friends, that he can't even recall and live out the truths that deep down he believes. And the question that begs to be answered by us is do we, like Job, receive good from God but not evil? The God who gives rain for our abundance and nourishment, the same God who gives hail and snow to cause calamity. We all, we all have times of doubt, do we not? Is God really a good God? When you miscarry, when you lose a child, you lose a parent. When cancer, um, you hear the big C word. It's easy to doubt if God is good. And I actually believe, as I've seen it throughout Scripture in the Psalms and Habakkuk, I've seen it here in Job, that, that God doesn't mind. I mean, actually, He invites us to, to, to question Him. As long as we question Him for the sake of understanding. And we're not railing against Him. But in those times of doubt, brothers and sisters, we can help each other. We can help each other. When you, when you doubt God's goodness, when you, when you doubt God's goodness in the midst of affliction, you, you, you go no further than the cross of Christ. Why is this happening to me, God? Why is this happening in the life of the ones I love? Are you even there? Do you even see this happening? Are you good anymore? And then we're reminded of the sacrifice of Jesus. We're reminded that at the very beginning, our first ancestors, Adam and Eve, our first grandparents who sinned, that God didn't say, I'm, I'm done with humanity. That He actually clothed them with an animal that was sacrificed. That was a foreshadow of the ultimate sacrifice. And He told them that one would come forth who would crush Satan's head. And we see the promises all throughout the Old Testament that God never, He always comes good on His promises. And His promises is that one day He will come to conquer all of evil. But for right now, for us, those who have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, evil was conquered on the cross. That sin no longer dwells in you. Yes, you are, we're in the flesh, we're still prone to sin. But sin no longer defines us. The enemy no longer has control over us or power over us. He can lie. He can deceive. He's still roaming around. But brothers and sisters, the best thing that we can do when, when we're suffering together and you're doubting God's goodness is to point to the cross. I know you're hurting. I know you're having a hard time believing it. But I want you to remember this, that God so loved you. He so loved you that He killed His only begotten Son. That Jesus suffered and died so that you would never experience ultimate suffering and that you would live in eternity with Him. Amen. We are going to slide into a time of communion. And, um, and I know this is a little bit awkward and it doesn't like, flow perfectly, uh, but I want to encourage you that um, maybe do some business with the Lord and use this card as part of the business that you're going to do. 
and uh, as people come to mind in your life that are suffering, and maybe it's you, maybe uh, you're suffering um, physically, you're suffering emotionally, um, a loved one is suffering physically or emotionally, um, put their name down if you want, but you don't have to. God knows their name, but put down, describe the person and what they're going through. Next Friday, m- next Saturday morning through next Sunday morning, um, we're going to pray over all these requests. And I want to encourage you to mostly include people on here that are headed for an eternity of suffering without a relationship with Jesus. So um, take some time um, at your seats with these cards. Fill out one, two, three, four, um, and then come on up. Uh, take the elements, the cracker and the juice. Drop your card in the basket. Um, go back to your seat, and I'll come up and we'll celebrate um, the Lord's Supper together.